All right, welcome back to Where's the Nuance with myself, El Nino. I'm here to talk about my experiences, reflections after spending a couple weeks in Mexico, but more specifically the week I spent with Obsidian Retreats in Tepoztlan, Mexico, as their breathwork facilitator. Now, truth is, when it became apparent that I was going to be the only guy in the group, the only male, there was a moment of apprehension. I think I thought to myself, oh no, me being a male, might my presence take away from their experience? I know that when it comes to retreats, moments of reflection, growth, a lot of the time that means jumping into the darkness. And the very harsh reality is that for a lot of women, jumping into that darkness means sexual trauma, you know, mistrust around men abuse from fathers, whatever that might, whatever it might be. And I thought that perhaps my male presence would stand in the way of them diving into their own vulnerability and into their own depths. And that was my only real apprehension around the experience. What I'm happy and proud and relieved to say is that by the end of the week, the common thread in the feedback that I received was that my presence as a male was very healing because it gave an example of what the healthy masculine could look like, what a man who embodies his masculine while also being able to hold space for the feminine energy, both within himself and others, can feel like. And that was like, it was such a meaningful piece of feedback to receive. Um, I know that I haven't always been this way. It's taken me many years to reach a place where I'm comfortable with my own feminine energy, where I can stand in the confidence of my masculine energy to hold space, to lead without being dominating, without being domineering, without being aggressive around it. You know, I think that the healthy masculine doesn't impose itself. It make, It's simply such a grounding force in its being. But for young men and secure men, of which I have been both, Perhaps I'm still young, actually. But when you're more insecure, you feel this need to dominate, to push your energy out into the world because you're not actually secure with the energy that resides inside. And I've been there. So to receive the feedback that actually I wasn't there and from people whom you know I got to work with on a very intimate level, it was really meaningful. Beyond that, every single woman that showed up to this retreat was there a hundred percent now that's not something that you always get in retreats in a yoga class in a breathwork ceremony you know a lot of people are dragged out there or come to these things but because a retreat has a higher barrier to entrance you know you got to fly to a foreign country pay a higher ticket price point every single person that's there was ready was willing and did the work. Every single morning, these women not only did the movement practices, but they did the breath work, which was not easy. I got to guide them through the Sri Vijasamaya Tantra sequence, which involves a series of movements paired with breath work exercises that takes us through each chakra, up to the third eye anyways, <clears throat> to clear energetic blockages. And this requires profound breathing. There's a lot of heavy movements. It's it's honestly a lot of work. It's thus the name breath work. Yet every single one of these amazing women showed up, did the work. And again, another piece of apprehension that I felt before going into this retreat was around this breath work sequence itself. 
This breathwork sequence was something I was gifted through the Kriya Yoga lineage, uh, a certain Kriya, a certain yoga lineage that I follow, um, Paramahansa Yogananda, Roy Jean Davis, Ryan Kurzak, Chris Ertain, Chris Ertain, who was my breathwork uh, teacher. And the reason it's called a gift is because it's really all about spiritual development. It's not just about calming the nervous system, which a lot of breath work is. This really is pranayama, moving prana, the vital energy through the Sushumna Nadi, through our spinal column, from the base of our spine, from that root chakra, all the way towards the crown. And each respective exercise, paired with the movement and a vocal toning chant of the respective bija, or sound, uh, for that chakra, is meant to help clear the energetic channels so that that prana can move it's very similar to Kundalini, but not quite the same. And my apprehension was that in my own practice of doing this now for six months, let's say, this specific sequence, I haven't exactly had a bunch of clearings. Now, I want to be clear. I got into this sequence of breath work seven and a half years into, let's say, my intentional spiritual life. I'm sure that my chakras aren't perfect, but... I don't necessarily have a bunch of blockages within my chakras. You know, I ha I have daily practices that have been working towards the clearing of any big blockages in my life. So because I haven't had a lot of personal experience of these big clearings, I wondered if anybody else would in, in a week's time. I didn't know if that was really enough time. Thankfully, by like, the, I think the first, second day, you know, tears were flowing women were having actual energetic clearings, getting to talk to them after and, uh, you know, getting the feedback that certain things in their life uh, were being cleared and these energies from, you know, I don't want to get too into it because of the personal nature of it, but really deep and profound energetic movement was happening within the span of 24, 48 hours of this breathwork sequence. And it, I guess it brought to the surface, the apparent power of these practices that sometimes I can even be apprehensive about. The truth is I do these things as I have faith and I know that on some level they're helping me, but I can't help but sometimes be a little apprehensive. I'm, I'm a natural skeptic. Even to the things that I do, I wonder of the effect, you know, but getting to witness and guide other people through these experiences and get the feedback and then literally witness these energetic clearings, the physical movement, the tears flowing. Oh, I'm not a sadist. I said this <laughs> real, but I love to see people cry during these, during these practices. It's, it's such, a, I guess, an evident way that demonstrates that something is happening and something powerful was happening. And there was really, really empowering to witness and something that I'm super grateful for. And again, getting to be that grounding force that's sharing this power of pranayama of breath with these women and then getting that positive feedback just honestly helped me step into a lot of my power as a man too. Because as a man, sometimes I feel like there's a cultural rift between men and women. Like we can't see eye to eye. And I don't typically feel this on an individual level, but I wonder if that cultural rift will be reflected back to me when I meet new women. And the fact that it wasn't that every one of these women was open-minded, that didn't create a judgment based on my gender or sex, was very relieving for me as well. You know, feeling the pain of others was beautiful reflection of the common humanity that we all shared. Because at the end of the day, 
you know, we did a lot of sharing about the uh, clearings, about the work, the workshops, and you know, a lot of this pain that was shared was beautiful. And what I really mean is that, you know, seeing that regardless of how we identify, what's in between our legs, we're humans on this ride together, and our suffering is something that we share. And I don't think suffering is inherently evil because I do see it as part of the fundamental development of spirit is to suffer. Now, the ways that we suffer don't have to be as grave as some of the way that we do in this world. And, you know, that is not to take away the urgency to improve our world, but rather just the reality that as humans, we progress and mature through certain types of adversity and suffering. And I see suffering as a potential bonding agent. In many ways, that's why I love vulnerability and why I love these retreats or any circle, men's circle, women's circle, co-ed circles, opportunities for vulnerability to take the center stage because when vulnerability is the center stage, it just becomes so obvious. We're not on different teams. We're all humans. We're all on the same ship, on the same ride. We're all going to die and we're all kind of trying to do this the best we can. We all want to feel safe, secure. We want to connect to people. Some of us want families. Some of us want to create families and our friendships. At the end of the day, we need connection and community. The moment that we become lost in the dogma of ideologies and the divisive nature of and the divisive rhetoric of separation, that's when we truly lose, lose ourselves. And it's in that recognition that I really see the value in these retreats and then experience like this where, you know, women, men, humans from all walks of life can come together with intention, with the openness and willingness to grow, to look within, to confront the good, the bad, and the ugly with the guidance of facilitators who are embodied in their practice. And that simply means are honest, are willing to look at their own shit too. The last thing you want in an experience like this is somebody who you know, acts like they're a saint or because none of us are saints. And that's the whole thing, right? Um, Osho has this lovely thing where it's like, it's better to be like the worst thing you can be is a saint. That's worse than a sinner because a saint represses all of their evil. You know, at least a sinner is allowing it to bubble in. There's nothing more violent than a human who, rep human who represses their nature. But in that same sense, also it's through our mistakes and through the development of awareness that our truest nature is revealed. And, and Osho stresses that an aware human could never be a violent one. And I agree with that. When I was younger, I had this cynicism that human nature was inherently dark. And don't get me wrong, I believe that humans have a capacity for darkness and evil and to cause pain. But the more, let's say, aware of myself I have become over these years, of really looking at my shit, looking at all parts of myself, my wounding, my attachment styles, my psychological makeup, my personality, my inclinations, my likes, my dislikes, my values, really taking the damn inventory of who the hell I think I am. It's in having done that, that it seems that the best parts of me or the most beautiful, loving, compassionate, sharing, kind aspects of my nature are now running the show. The bad, so to speak, let's say subjectively, that which I don't care to proliferate in the world, doesn't have much power when you become aware of it. This is the paradox or, or the irony of awareness. When you are aware of your own shit, suddenly it doesn't control you. Thus, the saint who denies they have the shit 
is the one who is ruled by it in the underworld and the undercurrents of their consciousness because it takes place in the shadow. It really uh, sets its roots down in the land that is untapped by consciousness. And it's there that it truly can rule us in the most perverted ways and natures and the domination of relationships. Whereas, for instance, when I can admit to myself something like, oh, I tend to give too much in relationships because I'm so eager to be in a relationship that the moment that I find someone I like, I give too much of myself. Simply by being aware of that, well, then I don't do it too much or I don't suffocate, hopefully, the other person. Um, you know, again, it's just the nature of awareness. You become aware of these patterns. And to talk about healing and wounds and patterns and even you know, tie this with the retreat experience, something that I shared in the retreat and I'd like to share here is that if we are on a journey to seek perfection, we're screwed because you don't, I mean, firstly, it's not a real concept. It's not like, it's not objective. It's not real. There is no such thing as human perfection. Our perfection lies in the imperfect nature of our humanity and the fact that we are each unique expressions of the divine as such. We are never to be the same. And that is the beauty in that when it comes to our wounds, the goal isn't to get rid of them. I always like to, I wish you could see me right now because I can make this analogy a little bit clearer. But imagine, you know, you yourself is the size of your fist and your wound is the size of a nickel. You know, that's taken up like 20% of, or let's say a toonie. That's taking up 20% of yourself because that's all you think you are at the moment. As you develop your awareness, the wound doesn't change. It's still the size of that toonie but yourself is now the size of your entire hand. And then after a few years of work and psychological development, yourself has expanded to the size of a, a fucking big ass balloon. And now that wound, well, it doesn't cause you that much trouble because it's not taking up as much space in the self. That is what it means to heal. You know, it's not, ooh, the wound is gone. Sorry, buddy. But unfortunately, every single piece of empirical literature within psychology does suggest that your persona and the early childhood experiences that you had have made an impact. There's no undoing that impact. What there is is becoming aware of the impact, and it's through that awareness that the patterns of behavior that once ruled you no longer do. That's healing. <sighs> Speaking of healing... One of the powerful parts of this retreat really was sharing. However, I wanted to bring up something that was uh, shared by my co-hosts, Jacqueline, I think, and Jade. And it was around the idea that if you share your story of pain more than three times, you're not looking for solutions, you're looking for attention. Now, nuance. I think that if you tell your story of pain to the same person more than three times, you're not looking for solutions, you're looking for attention. That much does check in with me. But I will say that sometimes we share our stories because we find connection and shared suffering. I think honestly, some of the best, like I've told my stories of pain many times to many different people because I have found that connecting with other people through a shared grief and trauma is such an incredible way to see the humanity and the shared the shared humanity in spite of our surface level differences. And often when we can recognize, hey, at the end of the day, we all love the same, we all hurt the same, and that's an incredible way to bring us together. But I think the truth of what they were echoing is that 
at some point, you have to do more than tell the story. Now, again, in my career, I tell the story, hopefully to inspire others, hopefully to connect with others, and to let people know that grief, trauma doesn't have to rule your life, because it doesn't rule mine. But of course, yes, within the nature of my career, I do share that story a lot. However, if you are not doing anything actionable around the objective events of suffering, like trying to expand your awareness, like trying to work with a therapist, a coach, or somebody in your life to deal with the trauma and the unconscious behavior patterns that have, are now negatively impacting your life, then truly you are simply looking for attention. And I think a lot of us need to be honest with ourselves. And there's a reason I critique the complacency of the perpetual victim, because I believe the perpetual victim is an example of an individual who is caught in the the spell of attention, has somehow subconsciously or consciously recognized that victimhood, victimhood now holds a powerful social currency. And simply by sharing the victim narrative that perhaps has a degree of truth, but simply in sharing that narrative, they gain social credit, they gain social power, and it's through that proliferation of their pain that, you know, they feel self-importance. But that's not a good way to feel self-importance. Truthfully, you should just simply feel worthy and you should find worth in the overcoming of adversity and the way that you face your demons and the way that you healed, not the way that you are ruled by your pain. I don't think there's a lot of admiration personally to be found in the perpetual victim narrative. Back to the retreat. There was a beautiful day, I think the most impactful day for me of the retreat, I mean, ironically, or maybe it's not that ironic because as someone who talks a lot, perhaps this is what I needed, was the silent day. And it was so powerful. There's something incredible about no doing, just being. I know this is a bit of a cliche at this point, but you know, people say humans are human beings, not human doings. Well, I think that's a damn cliche. Clichés are around for a reason. There's always this essence of truth that they carry. Thus, they stick around. And for myself, I'm such a hyperproductive individual. You know, when I wake up, it's like, okay, wake up, do meditate, work out, do this, set my action items, to work, work out, like whatever it is. You know, I'm always, I find a lot of purpose in doing. Great, no problem. But forcing myself to not only have a silent day, but no even journaling, right? So I couldn't just, couldn't lean on the writing of poetry or musing about life or reflections. It was simply sitting with myself in total stillness. And there was this gorgeous day at the retreat camp. The rain came down, forcing us all to really sit with ourselves, not simply lounging in the sun. And I did a morning meditation. I typically did a little one hour. It was nice and good. Then again, you know, don't have much to do. So I did another one, another 45 minutes. Great. At this point, I'm feeling pretty zen. I go, you know what? I could do another meditation. Again, I literally have nothing to do. Don't think that I typically do three and a half hours of meditating. But finally, I go, okay, I'll do another one. And then into my third hour of meditating, the prompt from earlier that Jade had brought up, one of the facilitators, was... What does abundance feel like in your body? And that, that thought arose for a second and I witnessed it and I allowed it to unfold. And in simply witnessing it, I was taken through a vision. And I know this, this is getting a little far out for some of the non-spiritual folk here. And again, let me just say, I am not a visual meditator. I meditate for years and years and years. I have done it 
every day, almost every day. And it's mostly just black under my eyes and just focusing on the moment. No problem. This was pretty wild. But by that third hour, the prompt shows up and suddenly I have of what can only be described as a vision of a potentiality of my future of the next eight years unfolding or let's say five to eight years, and I'm seeing these seminal moments of my life, some of them desires that I have conscious, some of them not so obvious, things that perhaps I have thought of in passing, but maybe I'm working towards at this moment. And they all seem clear as day, and it's incredible, and there's tears flowing out of my body, and I'm simply meditating to the witnessing of this vision. I'm not thinking about it. There are no thoughts or word formations happening in the mind. It is simply a witnessing of this vision of my life. And it's beautiful. Quite frankly, it was exciting. It was faith uh, cultivating. It, it really put, a, put me under a spell. And I opened my eyes and in my eccentric fashion, I said, and so it shall be. And so it shall be. Now, whether or not all of those things that I witnessed in that vision come true, who knows? But it was one of those powerful reaffirmations that later in the night I actually got to reflect on in journal. And I said, you know, if anything in my life, sometimes I, my faith in God can get rocked. My faith in that which is greater than I can be a little bit rocked. And I think I have to, you know, f force my way through life. I need to power through. Um... But somehow seeing that vision and the embodiment of it and the tears and that energy, on some level, it gave me faith that I know where I'm going. I really have, and again, it's so cliche because our the retreat was called uh, Crystal Clear. Yeah, that's what it felt like. It felt like I had a crystal clear clarity surrounding my future and getting to witness that vision in the last half hour, three and a half hours of meditation was what gave me the subconscious evidence to know that I am on the path that feels right to me. I am aligned. And honestly, that's what that week was for me. That week and that retreat with amazing women, co-hosting with some beautiful women who are so embodied in their feminine, in the divine feminine, allowing me to share my passions and bring that masculine energy, for me was a total reaffirmation that I'm doing the right thing. I'm following my heart. I'm being honest. I'm no longer trying to be what I'm not, which often was, I'm hard. I'm not. I'm sensitive. Am I hardworking? Am I tough? Do I know how to face adversity? Absolutely. But motherfucker, I cry every damn day, whether that's surrounding the beauty of life, reflecting on a loss, whatever it might be. I'm an, I'm an emotional guy. That's why I feel the need to use art as my medium of transmutation if i didn't have art poetry writing even making my little videos you know i might be very lost and i know that i'm the sensitive soul you know that which i am <laughs> i can't deny it and i can't pretend to be something else for other people and the truth is the more that i've stepped into myself the more it's become so obvious that those years and years that i spent trying to be an image, an idealized image of what a man was supposed to look like was what created some of the most shallow friendships, toxic behaviors, vices, alcoholism, pretty much everything, <laughs> everything not so great in my life arose from an alienation that I had to myself because I was, 
uncomfortable with being who I was, this kind of eccentric, slightly feminine, yet masculine guy who has a million passions, loves to fucking talk, and yeah, has an intense passion and desire to share what he loves with the world. There was a deep fear of rejection, of abandonment, and actually something I wanted to touch on, the nature of vulnerability. I actually had a dream at the retreat, and I read some books on dream analysis, specifically by Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, and I had this dream with a woman. I actually, actually told her about the dream, but I don't know her very well. She just is a woman in the city of Toronto, and she's so high-performing, you know, incredible in fitness and business. Just, I think in the dream and in my mind, she she's a template for a really incredible human, let's say. Like, wow, someone who's just so incredible and just so good at so many things. And in the dream, I was chasing for her affection. You know, we'd had like one moment where we had, we'd gotten intimate. <laughs> and then for the rest of the dream, I was bending over backwards, trying to make her trying to prove that I loved her. And she kept having to prove my love. She wanted to put me through these tests and it was this whole big, long, convoluted dream narrative. But the point and the lesson that I found in that was that on some level, because of the way that I was raised and the relationships that I had with, with my family and my parents and my psyche and me being a sensitive soul, it feels like I tend to want to be with someone who on some level I perceive as better than me. Um, my mom was a very wonderful woman, but in many ways, often it's like, it felt like I couldn't be good enough for her. So that wounding carries on in my romantic relationships where it's like, I'm attracted to people when I feel like I'm not good enough for them or on some level that they're either dominating, domineering, or I'm, or they're higher than me on some level. And again, becoming aware of that, like really I had to reflect on that and be like, okay, where did this come from? My wounding. Now what the hell do I do about it? And I think this is why I'm sharing it. It's not so much that you have to do anything, but become aware of it such that when I choose a partner, I'm being very, very conscious around what the choice I'm making. Am I choosing this person because they're treating me poorly and dominating? In which case, I have to be very mindful that I could attract narcissists. And unfortunately, I have, but that's a story for another time. And I have attracted narcissists because there's something attractive about this dominating force who just, whoa, like evidently thinks they're better than me. But thankfully, I realized it's quite toxic and I stood up for myself and left. But at least, I think, because the wound doesn't leave, right? Like I said earlier... You can choose someone who's better than you, a.k.a. different than you. And in that, I can kind of like switch the framework and be like, oh, it's not that they're better than me. They're just different. For instance, because if they have different interests, something that I'm not interested in, but I, you know, nonetheless, they're very good at, then it's easier for me to be like, oh, yeah, they're better than me, so to speak. Like it, it functions as a compensatory measure for that wounding pattern or that desire of wanting someone who's better than me. But doesn't lean into the nature of choosing someone who's dominating or narcissistic and will make me feel less than. And I guess I just share this just to be honest around like a lot of people, a handful of people have made like the comment like, oh, are you enlightened? 
no. <laughs> or I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that would, how you would describe that. Um, and I would be privy, be very mindful not to call myself that because I'm just very, very aware of myself. And I'm aware that I have wounds. I'm aware that I still have tendencies to seek out things that are not always good for me. I still have, you know, so, oh yeah, one of the things, I can still be arrogant. I can still find myself falling into comparison when I'm challenged. You know, when I feel insulted by somebody, my brain instinctively goes, like runs a little list of, oh, well, let's look at their life. Let's see what they're doing. Uh-huh, like how dare they criticize me but again that's just my own insecurity because the more confident I become in myself the less you need to prove it to yourself or others because it'll become more evident when you are the embodied mirror divine mirror that m most of the time people's criticisms of us are projections of their own insecurities because most people don't know us that well you know, that's actually something I stress a lot with people I work with, which is at the end of the day, no one will ever get to know you. You know, there's like this Japanese proverb. We wear three masks, the, the mask you show to the public, the mask you share to friends and family, and the mask that only you get to see. And I believe that. I mean, on some level, nobody ever gets to sit within your mind. And, you know, I do think thoughts matter in a way. If you're somebody who acts nice out in the world, but you secretly harbor bitterness and resentment and jealousy, that has a real energetic weight, and I think it speaks volumes to you. It also is good that you're trying to be better, but you do need to be better authentically. You know, like, and, and I, I said that even myself, like, when I was younger, I don't think I was inherently evil or anything, but a lot of what I did, it's like I, I, I did good because it was the good thing to do, not because I wanted to do it. You know, it wasn't until I truly developed, like, spiritual values and a and I guess like humbled myself and really recognized how wounded I was, that I was able to see a, a higher oneness and connection to me and everyone else, such that my generosity, my kindness, my charity comes from a place of just like, I have to do it. This is, this is me. This is all me. This is <laughs> not like a self-absorbed way, but in the, the self-recognized way. Like I recognize that this world is a reflection of me in some way, shape or form. And if I'm not willing to help, to spread love, to be kind. How the hell can I expect it of the world? You know, it's really something that I feel, I don't know, like this deep desire to do. Again, this is why I'm so happy about this retreat. It felt like it was a reaffirmation of my calling. Like I really am here to help be a mirror for other people, help other people develop their self-awareness such that they can look at their beautiful imperfections, their beautiful, twisted, wretched humanity, and in that awareness, they can grow. And I can continue to do the same, both in the realm of leadership and within the role of a student because I have so much to learn. What else might I share? These were my reflections of the retreat in Tepoztlan, Mexico. I hope that you find some value in them or just entertainment to my, my crazy self. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. I know your time is precious and I'm honored to share it with you. Please give the podcast five stars and follow us to stay updated. We look forward to seeing you here now next time for Where's the Nuance?